This is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode 79 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Moments of Transition. We've got a Bester episode, and where there is a Bester episode, that seems a good opportunity to bring a Bester fan into the group. I'd like to welcome James Thompson. Hi there. When when you say big Bester fan, that does make me sound somewhat of a fascist sympathizer. <laughs> well, you, you uh, uh, you're a best- Walter Koenig fan. You admire what he does with the character. Yeah, a Bester <laughs> appreciator, a Bester. Uh, well, first of all, who is James Thompson? <laughs> James Thompson is the creator of iPhone and Mac software, PCALC and Drag Thing. He's a regular uh, panelist on the Incomparable and the Relay FM networks. James, does that cover pretty much everything? I think that covers everything. I like to talk about yeah awesome so 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 first of all why do you like the bester character so much and second of all how do you feel about this whole babylon 5 thing you know for for babylon 5 uh first i mean i was watching ds9 and babylon 5 at the same time and you know babylon 5 was clearly superior well at least at the beginning and middle and I really took to the universe and the long-running art plot, which was the first time I could really remember anything like that on TV outside of soap operas. And at the time, my girlfriend, now wife, and I were watching on VHS cassette tapes. We bought them from the one shop in the entire city that sold them and got a handful of episodes a month. And then when we'd caught up, we watched as close to live as the episodes were being broadcast in the UK and Ireland. And eventually we ended up trading physical tapes across the Atlantic with a friend in the States for the last season. You know, the kids today won't believe that. Um, (laughs) But we had to work to see this show. And I think it was making that effort that made me more invested. And uh, we were there at the dawn well of the Internet. So there was all this other background information you could now get hold of. Um, Our dial-up Internet at home was really slow and expensive. So I remember downloading the entire Lurker's Guide, possibly via Apple's corporate network, uh, to have an (laughs) offline copy for reference as we were watching the episodes. But it was really that, and it was puzzling out what was happening in real time with people all across the the world. And that was the sort of first time that I really had that experience. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be on an episode with Bester, and I wanted to get on your show before you reach season five. So, um, <laughs> I mean, he, he's sort of the magneto of the Babylon 5 universe. He's trying to do the right thing for his people by whatever means necessary. Although that would make a certain somebody in season five Professor X, and that doesn't make me happy at all. But <laughs> Careful, spoilers. I know. <laughs> Uh, But Bester is happy, though. He loves his job, and he doesn't think of himself as a bad person. He's the hero of the story, and he doesn't understand why everybody else doesn't see that. You know, he has the best dialogue, and he's played wonderfully. uh, And that's why I like him. It's a great character, and such a step forward from poor Pavel Chekhov, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he gets to chew the scenery very, very well. Mm-hmm. And chew the scenery he does in today's episode, which we should get on with, shall we? Yes, let's go. 
All right, uh, here's your recap or reset. If uh, you are new to the podcast, if you are following us, uh, if, if you are following the trail of James Thompson directly to the audio guide to Babylon 5, um, here is what happened in the show previous to this episode. Babylon 5 seceded from Earth about a year ago, and the Shadow War is long over. B5 is isolated and dependent on the mercies of alien governments and Earth megacorps, while Earth's government and B5 are mounting a propaganda war. Meanwhile, tensions between the Minbari warrior and religious castes have been building ever since Ambassador Dolin dissolved the government. It's become a Minbari civil war now, and Dolin tried to broker a deal with elite Narun to end it. But at the end of the last episode, it appeared he cut and ran and ratted her out. And that brings us to moments of transition. Minbar is falling apart, and the religious caste is on the verge of surrender, and Dolin makes it official. Narun arranges for the warrior caste to accept the surrender in an ancient temple with full broadcast facilities and, oh yeah, a deadly energy beam historically used to settle leadership disputes in favor of the caste leader more willing to die. All part of his and Delenn's plan. Delenn steps into the starfire wheel and shames her counterpart into joining her. He doesn't last long. But Delenn is prepared to make the point that neither side should win by staying put and dying until Narun rescues her, replaces her, has a last-minute conversion to religious caste, and goes poof. Delenn restores the ruling Grey Council with a new worker caste majority, so ask for the union label. Meanwhile, Lita Alexander has run out of money now that she no longer has a Vorlon boss. Admittedly, he was a bad boss, but money was nice. She can't get a job with the Megacorps, though. If they do business with Earth, their telepaths have to be licensed with Psycor. Enter Alfred Bester, who makes Lita a deal she ultimately can't refuse. Get on the payroll and surrender her body post-mortem, or wind up broken alone. Garibaldi's no help. His new boss on Mars doesn't trust telepaths. Oh, and Bester is clearly up to something with Garibaldi. Finally, Earth Force has started moving on refugee and relief transports, killing 10,000 civilians. That's too much for Sheridan. It's time to start fighting back. Quote, We're going after the colonies, then Mars, and then Earth, and God help anybody who gets in our way. Possibly slightly less histrionically. And that was Moments of Transition. A lot of stuff happened there, huh? Oh boy, like a lot of stuff. That was a summary. Was it a summary? I don't think it was a summary. That was a short story. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, this this was, uh, even uh, Stephen actually noticed that I think he's really starting to to see the compression happening in real time in, you know, sort of racing to get done by the end of this season, just in case. Um, and And yeah, he said that this was, I think he still enjoyed it, but boy, he just was just like, there was so much. He thought that this should have been a 90 episode where, you know, one of the plots got its own, its own thing. He was kind of, I don't want to say disgusted, but disappointed with the fact that the whole Mimbari Civil War was just zipped up all of a sudden in this episode where all this other stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair compliment, comment. I mean, um, B5 happens kind of sort of in real time. One season equals one year, mm-hmm. um, and how you stretch these out, you know, you can you can assume that uh, Delin has been gone for a fair amount of time, um, but 
with so much happening in this episode with these three plot lines, um, or two plot lines and uh, sort and of And a very setup, big coda. And a very big <laughs> coda. Yeah, it feels like compression um, in terms of the season, but I kind of liked the amount of stuff that happened in this episode. It almost, did it feel economical or just forced? I, I rewatched Babylon 5 and all the movies and even Crusade again about four years ago. So I remember most of the details of everything that's happened and what's happening, but I'm just a bit fuzzy on exactly how much I'm supposed to know by these point in the episodes. So I'm, I'm trying to keep it uh, sorted in my head, you know, uh, how much we know of certain stuff and how much we don't know. That is a tricky thing. And yeah, at this point, I, I feel like it's this episode is, I wouldn't use the term economical, but I would say that because so much was happening, I felt like I was on a roller coaster and just like oh, yeah. on, on that, on one of those really big downward, we like everything's happening. So I, I quite enjoyed it because I felt like all of these things happening was just, you know, I was on the, the edge of my seat the whole time because, oh, this and this and this and oh my gosh. And then Lita over here. And I just, yeah, I was, I was okay with it myself. Yeah. Um, actually, I would say economical is a good a, a good term because, as I said, we, we see so many different things happening in this episode. We see a lot of Zach's shift in attitude to Garibaldi. He's finally figured out, oh, he really... He's not coming back. He doesn't call him chief anymore. We've got, you know, the Bester stuff and this hint that, you know, Bester is apparently... Um, hip deep in whatever's been going on with Garibaldi to start him on this path. There's all the Mimbari stuff uh, with Delenn basically restructuring Mimbari society, just like Valen did. Apparently around a thousand years is the expiration date for uh, <laughs> for their societies, and they've got to fix something. And they even get in Sheridan's declaration of war. And yet, I, I don't think I agree with, I mean, I guess, yes, there's more that could be done with all of these different pieces. There's always more depth or more interaction that you can put into it. But I didn't feel I needed it. So I just like, I feel like JMS, you know, pulled off a bit of a, a, a master, uh, a master stroke here. Uh, to a be bank able... shot, if you will. <laughs> I was trying to void that. Uh, <laughs> um, you know better than that. I'll just leap right into it. Uh-huh. <laughs> But yet, yeah, genuinely, I, I don't feel any particular episode was or any particular thread in this story was cut, was damagingly cut. Could there the have been one, more? I, yeah, but go ahead. The one that Stephen really thought was was the the Mimbari side of things because we have this this Mimbari warrior caste leader uh, Shikari who uh, we had never seen before, right? Like, I didn't remember seeing this. Right. He was not. only referred to um, at the end of the previous episode when Narun reported uh, in. Okay. Right. So Stephen was just like, that scene, really, the, the, the war didn't, there was no dramatic tension to it because you didn't know this character. He came out of nowhere. So there was no dramatic tension to, like, be able to expect how he would act or react. And and I, I kind of agreed with him in that case because he sort of... Introducing him here and having him have to to be condensed into this one episode with just a few scenes, he sort of came off as a boob, like just a hot-headed boob. And I was kind of thinking a little bit, like, how did this guy get to be the leader of the entire the entire warrior cast? 
And because you don't have any background or any introduction to this character, it just it really didn't feel like that big of a deal when he did or did not step into the Starfire wheel with Delenn. There was there was very much an imbalance of sort of importance of those characters because we know Delenn so well and we know Naroon uh, pretty well by now. We've we've seen him again and again, and you know so his sacrifice meant something, but his boss's actions really just sort of fell flat. And I think if we had had him either introduced earlier or an entire episode to actually get to know that character, I would have felt better about that. But the other sides of things, all the other other plots I felt like we were grounded enough in them because we had we had experienced things with with those characters and those plots before I guess I can see that um I did think with the uh the Mimbari side of it we basically had the entire civil war sort of represented by one corridor with half a dozen slightly injured people in it and that was really (laughs) all we were seeing and I know and, that's and a lot uh, of exteriors of of wrecked cities. Except yes. it didn't look wrecked. I was like, isn't that that's not how it looked before? I honestly couldn't remember. I still just thought it looked pretty. No, it, it had no. It had like uh, there was a much darker color palette compared to um, what we've seen in yeah, on guess. Mimbar before, and you know, smoke and you know, there there was enough showing people like running instead of just sort of sauntering the way Mimbari normally do. So yeah, I, I made a note of that. I made a note of that, that they'd use those exterior shots to try to establish just how downhill things have gotten. But apparently they didn't make it obvious yeah. enough. Yeah, I'd have just liked slightly more on the interior things than than just that like one corridor set. And But, you know, it, it, on a TV budget, it, it, it did the did the mm-hmm. necessary. Yeah, I don't know that they could have done much more with the Mimbari Civil War without really doing a lot with the Mimbari Civil War. Um, mm-hmm. Possibly at the expense of other storylines. I don't know. Um, yeah. And to be fair, they, that's kind of how they've operated when, when we visited Centauri Prime and Narn that, you know, unless... Maybe a little more with the Centauri storyline last season, but... Generally, the, the the main action is supposed to be Babylon Five, so mm-hmm. you know they've they've always sort of shortcut and and hinted and uh, and painted with broad strokes when it came to when it came to planet side activity on the other with the other races. Well, also their best set is a black room um, yeah. with some spotlights. So. Yeah, <laughs> true. Absolutely. Um, was this a good swan song for John Vickery? You know, I don't think we. I don't think there's any spoilers in saying that. Yeah, we're not going to see Narun again. He ashes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I was a little struck by first of all the actor who is playing Shikari is either because of the framing of the shots or just because of uh, genetics. He's a good head and a half taller than John Vickery, mm-hmm. and Narun is. Reduced to the second-in-command role in this episode, whereas in the previous episodes that we've seen in him, he's he's been more powerful. So I was spending most of the episode going, uh, he looks like Naroon, he sounds like Naroon, but he doesn't feel like Naroon up until the very end of the episode. Oh, really? Because I, I found this so fascinating to watch, um, knowing 
knowing what was going to happen. And I was talking to Stephen about this afterward. I said, you know, if you watch this episode again, it is so fun to watch Naroon in every conversation he has with Shakiri because he's asking these sort of subtle Mm. questions like, you know, I'm a little bit worried about the cost or, you know, is it, you know, shouldn't we, isn't, uh, isn't life an important thing to protect? Like all of these things that are just really sort of subtle questions. And he's got his boss giving him these very sort of, you know, blockheaded, you know, fight him up answers and he he does this great job of staying you know stone-faced he's not showing how much he what he's thinking inside but he's such a good actor that behind his eyes you can kind of see just tiny facial movements that he is super duper mr judgy pants at that point yeah, I agree. He's, he's paying I, I attention and he's this is like through the episode you can kind of kind of see him reinforcing the choice that he has made to help Delenn with this. And once you get to the end and realize, yep, he definitely was working with Delenn, you can kind of go back and re-experience that from a, a different perspective. Yeah, I totally agree. I was making all kinds of jotting notes, just basically, you know, John Vickery, John Vickery, because he played this so subtly, um, you know, mm-hmm. he comes in and he's reporting to Shakiri. And after the tag of the previous episode, we we're just like, oh, damn, Delenn's screwed. She's going to get double crossed. And then, you know, I think, you know, Shakiri says the first thing that signals to Naroon, okay, yeah, Delenn's right. You know, not that I wasn't willing to believe her before, but yeah, right in front of my face, this guy does not care about the cost of human, of Mimbari lives. He does not care how much he drags down the civilization as long as he wins um and just you know seeing Naroon you know just feeling you know subtly you know drawing this out trying to see if he can push the guy in the right direction but no that's not going to happen and um I think it's those conversations that we see in the episode that push Naroon not only to the fact that he's supporting Delenn but to actually step up and then give his life uh in her place uh, when I, she looks like she's not going to step out of the circle. I, I, I think it's these last conversations that show him, I've got to make this statement. I've got to help change our culture, even if it costs me my life. And the other thing is that all the conversations that he has, he brings up most of the points and the questions and the answers he got later on when when he's sort of confronting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they, they, they all they all had a purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think actually, yeah, Shannon, uh, what you were saying too kind of brought it home. He had already decided to to work with Delenn because he recognized what she said and stuff. But I think what we saw him do throughout this episode, and and as James just said, like how he brings it all home at the end. I think what we were actually watching was him convincing himself, or not convincing himself, in real time, bringing himself from where he was, which was agreeing with Delenn, to the point where he he realized just how important it was that that she be the one that's that's listened to and that the warrior cast as it is now not be at the top of the spectrum so i think if the starfire wheel had happened at the beginning of this episode um delenn would have died and and we all would have been very sad and rune would have gone on with things and tried to help his people move along i think because he had had sort of tested Shakiri throughout this episode and realized just how far gone the the leadership of the warrior cast is. He got to the point where he was willing to lay down his life. Um, So because it happened at the end of it, after all this stuff happened, we have him saving Delenn and sacrificing himself because he realizes that she's the one that his society needs moving forward. 
So the question I had was, so he has this conversion to the religious caste right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, was that done so that there wouldn't be any question of like, if he had been warrior caste and had died, mm. would the warrior caste then be in charge as it were? But because he had <laughs> had this conversion, it's like, well, you know, we, we've crossed, we've covered all all the legal avenues here. I, I think that, yeah, I think that was him, you know, closing any mm-hmm. final loopholes, even though Delenn had clearly bested Shakiri in, in mm-hmm. the first trial. Um, she could have stepped out at any point, but she wasn't going to. And um, I, yes, I know, dramatic effect, JMS, but, you know, mm-hmm. what would have, I, I don't understand what would have stopped Narun from just simply pulling her out of there. And letting yeah, things go. Yeah. It's not like this Starfire wheel was some kind of sentient thing that demanded the sacrifice or it would keep going. I think I think it was just so that, you know, there was a big dramatic thing and no, yeah. nobody could argue with with it. Right. Um, because if they're both still alive, then, you yeah. know, and if it's I not re- resolved. Remember correctly from earlier episodes, I think there's... Uh, People from different castes can get together and have children. There, there's been discussion about how um, somebody can choose to convert. We had that with the war hero back in season one, uh, whose um, body got kidnapped, got taken yeah, that, after, and, during its tour of state. Yeah, and, in uh, in Narun's first appearance, uh, yeah, uh, and, Shia Lee Branmer uh, converted from religious to warrior uh, for the yeah. Min- for the Earth Membari War, and. Um, if I remember at the time, it was something like, you know, the mother's cast takes precedence as far as how the child is raised. So I'm going to guess that Narun's dad was the religious one and Narun, you know, jumped ship to make the final point that, yes, the warriors, as they kept saying, and I really love how JMS has created this culture and this society, pointing out, yes, we need people to fight for us, but you know what? We need people to think for us, too, so <laughs> we really need the religious caste. And then Delenn turns that on its ear in the end by pointing out, hey, we need the people to build and create. Mm-hmm. These are the people that our society rests on, and therefore she gives them the majority in the new Grey Council. It has always felt a little simplistic to me. Um, that you'd only have three casts and, you know, war- worker, warrior, religious. It's just, it. it is as broad a brush as you could possibly get. But we have forgotten about the worker cast uh, pretty much consistently throughout uh, the show. In the first season, there was even an early reference to there being only two casts, religious right. and warrior. Uh, so it Steve, is... I- at that line where where Delenn says you had forgotten the worker cast, hadn't you? Stephen just leaned over and whispered, "I had." <laughs> <laughs> With reason. Yeah. With reason. They they like like Chip said that they seemed that felt like they were inserted later on um, mm-hmm. to to make the balance of three that the Membari um, society is obsessed with. Any other things that we want to put a pin in on the Minbari side of things? The only thing that occurred to me was um, the leaving the this the center empty. Uh, I think she says for the, the the one who is to come or something. And mm-hmm. I couldn't remember if that ever got resolved within the show. I couldn't either. So I, I look forward to spoiler space for you guys telling me because that was a thing that I had forgotten. Um, yeah. yeah, that is that is fairly open. Um, I'm sorry, I have to praise Mira Furlan. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, here is yet another point where Delenn gets to kick butt and take names. Uh, and the long oratory scenes um, are, you know, that's such a place that's so easy for a viewer to tune out. 
Um, when, pe- when one person is just talking and talking and talking, but oh my God, she had my attention the entire time. With, with, with every mm-hmm. word, with every move, she really delivered. She did. She and really did. props to the makeup department, because uh, she was looking pretty rough when she came out of that wheel. Hmm. Yeah. Although not as rough as I expected her to, because when Shakira comes out, like he's smoking and he hasn't even been in it there that long. And I understand that it would have been really hard to make her be smoky when she's being carried by Naroon and um, and Lanier. But yeah. but I was uh, expecting she, her to. Look I was wondering if worse. that was the lighting or something. I don't know. That, that I think maybe she was also she was protected by her conviction. You know, she was <laughs> she was standing there and like when he first goes into it, you can see him sort of like stagger back with the the mm-hmm. the, the, yeah. the impact of it so she's clearly you know just sort of uh can yeah. can take it more than he can yeah i like this headcanon i accept it and speaking of things that were, were left a little open to steven was very uh intrigued by the little scroll thing that delenn gave to lanier she's like he was like is that Chekhov's scroll and then he laughed at himself for saying Chekhov. so <laughs> Yeah. No, I think just like they said, if she, you know, she mm-hmm. expected to die, she left instructions mm-hmm. for uh, what to do after her death. Yep. Yep. And he knew that. I was, he yeah. was just like, I wonder if that's going to come back. And I was just like, I'm not saying anything. He also thought that the, uh, the Mimbari temple that this all happened in looked like uh, Jabba's palace from the outside. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to call us back to Stephen's Chekhov scroll joke and use that as the segue to go to the next <laughs> uh, the next story thread. Let's bring in uh, Alfred Bester and let's bring in Lita Alexander and one of the most atypical for a science fiction show plot lines uh, that we've had in a while. Lita needs a job. Mm-hmm. Lita is mm-hmm. looking for a job. That's 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 her whole that's her whole story in this episode. It's so yeah. frustrating. After everything that she has done, I just I get so mad at the entire command staff for not like they have solved so many problems by finding ways around things and loopholes within the system and all that kind of stuff. And after everything that she has done for them, I just I feel like they they really should have come through better for her and found her some, you know, decent quarters and some income. Like there's gotta be something like if, if you're not harnessing a telepath, like in, in your, in your day-to-day job, when you're working on things that are this important, I don't know. I just, I get very touchy at them for that. And, and part of me wonders if, if that last trip that she took with Sheridan to Zaha Doom, where, you know, she took the initiative and basically blew up the planet without asking first, if that was sort of like, had that not happened, would she have been taken care of better by the command staff? Or is this just, just the way it was going to work out no matter what? Anyway, I was I was very, very sad for her. And Stephen was just shocked that she was even on the screen in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you said, it's very frustrating. It's very annoying. It's hard to headcanon. You know, everybody's just this busy because, yes, everybody's busy. Everybody's trying to deal with um, the issue of Earth now in the aftermath of the Shadow War and all of that sort of thing. But still, it's not like Sheridan to be that forgetful of somebody. And I think it's sort of telling that, um, you know, Zach says that this is coming from the some kind of office. It's not Sheridan's personal mm-hmm. thing. It is just some nameless office. And yet... 
no one thinks to go at least point out to Sheridan, hey, um, can we do something about this? That that isn't even suggested that I remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, it's really, really annoying. But on the other hand, JMS has never shied away from showing people making mistakes, people forgetting things, people being jerks. Um, you know, this this is not a Star Trek episode that gets wrapped up in one hour. So everybody remembers everything by the last 10 minutes so that they can solve it all. Yeah, I also thought it was strange that the job interview was happening like in the middle of the uh, cafe area or whatever it was. You know, could, <laughs> don't they have an office where they can do this sort of thing? Uh, that would require building a set, not. James. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> um, but they had her quarters and they're going to have to build her another quarters set when she gets reduced to an F-class room or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean, I thought it was odd the the sort of like Zach comes in and the, the, their interactions because they're clearly friendly and he's like, well, you know, I wanted you to this to come from you know, uh, not a, not a faceless uh, email or whatever. The, uh, and then he's like, oh, by the way, you know, can you do me favors and and all this? <laughs> um, he's not the, the pa- sharpest tool in the shed. That's true. Well, true, yeah. And I do appreciate her reaction to that, that she's just like, even at this point when she has sort of sunk so low and is kind of flailing for money, she's not willing to to bend the rules that much. Although she does mention, like, I mean, her, her gut reaction is like, no, I can't believe, like, I love her, I love her performance there. Patricia right, Tallman right. does a great job. But then at the end, she says sort of like, you know, if it was anybody else, I might think about it, but I don't want to do that with Garibaldi, he was the first person I met when I showed up, and I was just like, "Oh yeah, that's right. You were mm-hmm. you were here." Yeah, <laughs> the, she was in the, at the gathering. very beginning. And, uh, and yeah, that I liked the callback to to that very very early early bit there. And I don't know. I felt like the the fact that she said she would be willing to consider it with somebody else kind of I don't know nerfed the fact that I was really proud of her convictions there for that first moment so well that sort of made sense to me a bit uh, that um i mean she has spent so much time you know with the forlons and you know basically there's been a lot of opportunity for her psychor training to be chipped away i mean yes her Mm -hmm. gut she's still a good person she doesn't want to invade people's privacy willy-nilly um but um she kind of she needs money now she you know she needs jobs and you know i think she's more willing to consider you know i mean there's the fact that you know what what does garibaldi need her to do when when he when she goes to him to see if 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 he can give her a job you know he he's not official uh he's not part of uh station uh command anymore so he could be asking her to you know do various things to keep an eye out for him who knows what would happen there and she's willing to consider it because she's got to survive she does have a slightly flexible moral core at this point i mean um Mm -hmm. she did help uh sheridan and garibaldi out in in scanning deep scanning the centauri uh who set up uh brother malcolm or Mm -hmm. in uh passing through gethsemane and she didn't she she didn't have any compunctions there but up until the end of this episode she's got nothing to do with psychor and it's not about she's got to follow psychor rules she's at this point she's she's genuinely concerned about violating privacy and using the power that she has against somebody who'd be helpless against that mm-hmm. but and somebody I- she cares about 
Yeah, I mean, I think if Zach had had more of a clue of what was going on and had said to her, you know, I think Bester has done something to Garibaldi. True, um, I, yeah. I think the she way def- she goes at the end when Bester apparently scans Garibaldi, she, you know, immediately blows his cover. Yeah, so I think she would have. Re- I think she would have been far more receptive if the, it had been clearer that it wasn't. If how much it was down to his concern that something was up, rather than you know just as violating his privacy. Good yeah, point. As as we said, Zach, bless his heart. <laughs> <laughs> not the not the sharpest sharpest tool in the shed. I do like how how sort of Lita has a friend and it's Zach, you know, on the command staff and stuff. But I still felt like the 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 interactions between the two actors verbally was really nice but I felt like the blocking of it was really awkward because every time he came forward and put his hand on her shoulder it really Mm. felt to me like like a high school play where the director says okay now at this point you're gonna walk over here and you're gonna put your hand on her shoulder and and he does it because he's told to do it but it just doesn't feel natural like well, he just doesn't sell it. I think character. that calls back. If, if we remember the last time we saw these two interact, was was him, you know, br- bringing her pizza at the know, worst or, possible moment. At the, yeah, right. uh, th- mm-hmm. that feels very much like Zach likes Lita. He he likes her a lot, and he's mm-hmm. not sure exactly how to point this out to her in any constructive way because she's you know while she appreciates his friendship, and I I think she's glad that he's become a friendly face. I'm not sure. I'm not sure she's picking up on it, or if she is, she's not sure what to do with it. Irony for a telepath. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, she she does invite him in. You know, she's cooking uh, yeah. dinner, and she's like, you know, come in. Do you want to share it with me, and all, and all that sort of stuff? So you know, right? They are friends. Mm-hmm. She gives up. She gives in to Bester. She has one setback after another in this episode to sort of bring it home. And then finally she she signs on the dotted line. And she is just bawling when she is looking at herself in the mirror and she's got the badge on and she's pulling the gloves on. Um, This is not who she wants to be. This is awful. And it's a a really effective moment because that's just a portrait of misery there. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, do we buy that she that this was a decision that she had to do? Uh, does it does it does it I, feel like a genuine tragedy? I think that she could have used her connections and talked to somebody. Um, you know that just say, you know, something to Sheridan, and I'm sure he would say, you know, well, this is stupid that you're you're having to do all this stuff. Uh, so you know, I don't want to blame her you know, for making that decision. But um, it it didn't feel like she'd exhausted every opportunity. Yeah, I feel like if she would have gone to Sheridan and said, listen, m- these are my choices. I am either going to have to go back to working for Psychor, even if it's a name only. I think that Sheridan, Sheridan doesn't like Bester. And if he knew that the telepath who lives on his station was going to have to start, you know, working for Psychor again... I don't know. I feel like maybe he would have done something. But on the other hand, I think she has... She has no reason to trust him at this point. Right. I was going to say, there's a mm. reason for her not to go to Sheridan because their Mm. last interaction Mm. that we saw on camera, you know, he made it fairly clear that apparently deep down he sees her as a means to an end rather than her own person. Um, Mm. I don't remember how much Lita got of Ivanova's 
allergy to telepaths. Um, if she knows about that, that's a reason not to go to Ivanova. Um, but mm-hmm. I think, you know, she, you know, she could have maybe, she could have gone to Jakar <laughs> and said, you know, hey, <laughs> dude, you remember back when, you know, they're, they both characters have grown enough that I think, you know, she could have worked something out in a much better way than Jakar tried to do way back in the beginning. That's um, true. But I, I think at this point, though, Lita has been through so much. I mean, think about the abuse that she took from mm-hmm. from her, her last Vorlon boss and the fact that she has 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 been altered which is the whole reason that Bester wants her in the first place and has has these much stronger powers and has used them you know in battle and has literally destroyed a planet I mean you know by triggering something and she just has been sort of like sinking and trying to find all these things she's had failure after failure after failure I think she was probably just in an emotional place where that was literally the only light that she could see in the darkness mm-hmm. that she was in. And she was just a drowning person who reached out and grabbed the only piece of driftwood that she could find. So I'm, I am okay with her making that decision, but I do have, and, and that scene where she's pulling on the gloves, I think for me is the most, per, perhaps the most heart wrenching scene in all of Babylon five that we have seen to this point, because it just, it just gets me in the heart. But mm. uh, Stephen didn't even recognize what was happening in that scene. So it's it's only effective. You're right, Chip. It's an effective scene. But it's only an effective scene if you actually notice what's happening. He, Stephen just thought she was really sad. He didn't recognize that she was wearing... He didn't notice the uh, the Psychor badge and that she oh, was putting even on though, gloves. Yeah, because Bester pointed that out in the episode. Yeah, he did. That, that yeah, in the conversation, he's like, you'd have to wear the badge and the gloves. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, he caught yeah. all that, but he just, he, he, he was distracted by the collar because he was kind of like, oh, she's wearing something with a collar now. And it, yeah, he, he didn't notice it. W- and in watching it again, it is super short. Like, I think maybe it could have been a little bit, a little bit longer because yeah, when we got to the end of the episode and I was talking about how much that scene breaks my heart, he, he didn't understand until I explained, oh no, she has decided to go back to join Psychor. And he was like, what? He, he really didn't recognize that. So. Well, I mean, in the earlier scene, you know, so when Bester's talking to her and and mm-hmm. sort of outlining the deal, you know, he, he leads with the, I want your body line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which she takes obvious offense to. Um, But then when she realizes the deal, I mean, she says, you know, I'd rather put a bullet in my brain than do this. And clearly she decides that, no, she will, she won't do that. um, And she'll take the deal. And that's why I think it, it, I found it difficult was how uh, against it she was in that, in that earlier scene. Let's bridge between um, Lita's little story and Garibaldi's little story by talking about Bester because he's intersecting with both of them. Um, is this a good uh, outing for Walter Kane? It's a different outing a bit. Um, this this particular episode, for the most part, Bester is not being he's not being deliberately sinister. You know, he, he, he's here not because he has to talk to anybody. He's just going to, you know, I guess, apparently check on Garibaldi from the subtext and uh, make his proposition to Lita. And I, I don't know. I, I think I prefer Sinister Bester. Well, he, do, he does push Garibaldi into the, you know, being slightly more uh, on the outside. I think in this episode, because, mm-hmm. you know, he, he does the scan and then uh, Garibaldi chases after him and then gets pulled aside, you know, pulled away by the, the space cops. 
And mm-hmm. uh, although I love how Zach just sort of looms over him at the end, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's you know yeah, we pulled him off you, but buddy, I have words for you. <laughs> yeah, but I you know I don't think he's I think he's being sinister, but in a just a slightly different way, and I I think his offer to Lita was probably genuine. You know, because mm-hmm. she's she's a telepath, so you know, it, following on the Magneto analogy, you know, she's one of his people. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, there's still yeah. an element of sinisterness to it. I, I did like the the you know you know if you die of uh, anything but natural causes, the deal is null and void. And he says, "I'm taking a big chance here because this isn't exactly a safe environment." <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'm thinking more in terms of the like when he first gets to the station and he's uh trying you know he he keeps talking at the guards and just mm-hmm. keeps getting a little bit goofier and a little bit goofier. I, I feel like he's always had that goofiness though cuz he's he he's always had these like weird little comments where he's just sort of clearly amusing himself because because the rest of the world is just not you know not worthy these these mundanes just don't amuse him so i think that that we just got you know five or six of those lines all in a row instead of scattered out throughout the rest of mm-hmm. the episode so i i kind of like that because it was just like this is this is more you know this is off duty bester not exactly off duty but you know he's like you said he's not there to talk to the command staff and and i thought in a way for me i found that actually more sinister than than before because when mm-hmm. he's been on there for uh, for his sort of official psychor reasons to interact with the command staff that's you know that that's that's business and yes it's sinister but here he is he's clearly doing some sort of manipulation that that we don't quite understand yet and steven was just like bester it's about time there's definitely something going on there and when he <laughs> he said the line about pushing garibaldi further down the mm-hmm. path that he wants or whatever steven was just like aha mm-hmm. so i find that kind of fuzzy gray behind the scenes action even more sinister than than the uh, more sort of upfront stuff that he, dealing that he's done before i i really enjoyed enjoyed him coming back here and and that was sort of another thing i just like watching bester so much that if the mimbari war subplot had been broken out into its own episode i feel like we could have gotten more bester and mm-hmm. that would have made me happy yeah <laughs> I, agreed and i like the fact that he's just so happy in his work you know he, he, he seems <laughs> cheery and he he, he gives like the, there seemed to be a theme in this episode like right at the beginning we had multiple people you know not getting a good night's sleep and he strikes me <laughs> as somebody who gets a really good night's sleep. <laughs> yeah, the bastard. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see here. Uh, let's uh, bridge into Garibaldi real quick before we need to jump into spoiler space. Um, you know, talk talking about people having to hustle to try to make a living. As much as Garibaldi wants to be on his own, he's really not on his own. William Edgar's uh, is got him basically in the palm of his hand and mm-hmm. forces Garibaldi to uh, fire Lita uh, just right right as soon as he's hired her and that doesn't go well at all he's just yeah, I have to wonder if if Garibaldi if you know the old Garibaldi before all this weirdness started happening if he would have would have gone along with that. Because I feel like he's always been sort of a man who's really strong in his convictions and has a lot of loyalty to the people who are his friends and who he trusts. And by this time, he's known Lita for a long time. She's helped out with a lot of stuff and he really trusts her. And I I find that 
perhaps his willingness to go along with William Edgar's or Charlie, as Stephen calls him, because you never see Charlie from Charlie's Angels either. Uh, the, The willingness to go along with that might be part of whatever is going on with him, because that doesn't that doesn't feel like a real Garibaldi move to me. I would agree with that. I can see that. James, how do you feel about uh, Garibaldi uh, at this at this point in his story? Um, I I remember when this was going on, I, I I didn't like it because I I have a problem with characters that are being like you know controlled or influenced or whatever that are going away from what you think that they should be doing, mm-hmm. and that always gives me a certain degree of. Uh, not anxiety, but you know, just I, that's one of the things I really dislike in TV shows is that that sort of uh, you know you feel that the character should be doing this and they're they're not doing what they should be doing. Yeah, I I never liked this particular bit of the arc for that reason. Post spoiler, we will say we know what's happening, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just the I I I keep waiting to get to the end of this, but I am. So 100% Team James, because I feel like, yeah, it is it is a kind of emotional manipulation that the show is performing on, on us as the viewer. And yes, anytime any TV show or book even has a, a, a hint of this same kind of thing where a character that, that we really like and I really like Garibaldi or liked Garibaldi and then for whatever reason starts starts acting differently it's just and i know that that's the the way it's supposed to feel it's supposed to be frustrating we're supposed to be worried and we're supposed to be anxious for for it to finish but i don't enjoy that feeling and i would use the word anxiety james i'm going to go there because that is how i feel so so i too just i just want it to be revealed i want it to be over because in you know however it's going to finish i just want it to be done because i don't like feeling this way there are certain kinds of dramatic tension that i enjoy uh and i think for me more that become that comes from uh a mystery that where all of the characters get to be themselves to to solve this mystery but when Mm -hmm. you're taking a character and twisting twisting that very fundamental thing that i have come to love it's it's not uh an experience that i find enjoyable as a viewer I wish to join you in your clubhouse. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. Have some punch. And I'm sitting here going, wow, this is dramatically interesting, you know? Um... (laughs) Dramatically interesting, but if you, if, you know, like, certainly I am, and I think Erica too, we're character people, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, we we grasp onto characters first and then, you know, enjoy the fun plot around them that JMS has created. And right now the plot's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it's interesting. Ah! Yes, it's interesting, but it, I'd rather it be interesting like like you said puzzle solving, everybody together. I I've, mm-hmm. I've said this on other podcasts. I'm 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 very much like, you know, that point in the A team. I love it when a plan comes together. That that's my jam. <laughs> <laughs> having well having characters be manipulated like this, knowing it's happening and not being able to stop it and not being able no other characters picking up on it except maybe Zach and poor Zach doesn't know what the hell to do. Um <laughs> That's frustrating. 
Yep. And I and I uh, recognize that that's the kind of thing that really really works for some people. So I'm not I'm not at all intimating that this is a failure on JMS's part or or a failure on the part of the show. It is just it is just a choice that doesn't work for me as a viewer, but it's it's being done well. Like I I think that that it's being laid out really interestingly because we keep getting, you know, hints and and tantalizing little glimpses of what's going on and we certainly got a big one here with Bester showing up um so i think i think that what they're doing they're doing well it's just not it's, it's not a me thing yeah so it's three against one is really what we're saying i'm used to it i'm used to it <laughs> that's okay chip you can go spread out in your own clubhouse you've got much more room Well, while you guys are all trashing one of the most interesting and compelling and tension-making, which I think hey, is a hey, plus, not a minor, minus thing, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I think we do need to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I don't. One Scott Adams. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know who Scott Adams was at the time that I watched this, so it just... Completely went over my head and I just thought, well, that was an odd moment and, you know, didn't think much more of it. And I think I must have found that out, like, when I rewatched it four years ago and and had gone through The Lurker's Guide. And now, looking at it, uh, Scott Adams is an increasingly problematic figure and I very much enjoyed Dilbert. 20 odd years ago okay (laughs) finally clued into like what are you talking about (laughs) and uh i you know don't enjoy it anymore um and it's just one of those it's it's like um oj simpson in the naked gun movies basically yes Mm -hmm. chip will you lay it out for us like what you guys are talking about because i'm sure there are plenty of listeners who are still like huh um, Scott Adams, creator of the Dilbert comic strip, is has the cameo as Mr. Adams, whose dog and cat are going to take over the universe um, Meeting when he meets with Garibaldi in the middle of the episode. Uh, yeah, see, I did, not, uh, I did not pick up on that at all. And for those who don't know who Scott Adams is, be glad. <laughs> He's become a controversial, controversial figure with interesting opinions about uh, politics and masculinity these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time, um, at the time, you know, the online fandom, you know, and the Venn diagram overlap between online Babylon Five fandom and people who read the Dilbert comic back in the day was practically a single circle. So mm-hmm. it it did make a big deal for U.S. based fans who were who who had frequent access to the Dilbert comic. But uh, last thing, because we're really running long on time and we haven't even gotten to spoiler space yet, Earth Force escalating egregiously. Um, this is a big uh, a big turn, or so it seems, uh, right at the end of the episode. Um, uh, we've had the propaganda war going uh, for a few episodes now between um, Earth government and Babylon Five, but now the now they're shooting on civilians and refugees and uh, humanitarian supplies. It's it's gotten ugly really fast, and that really pisses off uh, Sheridan. And we get the promise that to borrow a line from Matt LeBlanc in the 
fairly egregious Lost in Space movie, this Cold War just <laughs> got hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's almost physically painful. Yes, but, it is. <laughs> but yeah, but uh, it, almost appropriately so. Steven did not like that last scene at all. He felt like it just came out of nowhere, which I agree. And I said, you know, yeah, it came out of nowhere for, for them too. That was sort of on purpose. But he pointed out that there have been multiple times where Ivanova bursts into a room and rants and raves about something. And it's just some trivial thing. So he was really sort of expecting that that same same sort of thing because, I mean, her... Her delivery was a little bit different from those other times, but not enough to really signpost that very well. And because he was expecting it to be some trivial thing and it wasn't, it it didn't have a dramatic impact. It was just more confusing. He was like, wait, hmm. now what's what's happening? So he just he, he he didn't like that. And afterwards, he was just like, I'm really noticing the truncated nature of the season like this being just sort of smushed in there and, and sudden. Um, it, di- it didn't have a, a big sort of, oh, my God, at the end, he was just sort of like, huh? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that we have time for oh, my God. I mean, it's I, mm. I agree that, you know, the scene itself, I'm trying. I don't think we had any hint of um, other really problematic things happening yet even in the propaganda wars we're hearing about how like the cabinet has mass resigned and you know things like that but um but yeah it does seem sudden i personally think claudia christian differentiated um from her previous you know i'm really mad about some irritating thing versus you know he just killed ten thousand innocent people and i'm screaming mad i i thought she I thought she moved it up enough to show that this was really, really huge. And similarly, you know, with, with Boxleitner, you know, this was very much a Sheridan gets mad moment. Um, but the rhetoric felt a little over the top as well. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a very fast way to get us back onto um, the problem with Earth Track. I think after having b- mm-hmm. been dealing with Mimbar the last few episodes and other station internal politics. You know, I think with Claudia Christian, I I personally agree with you. I noticed the difference in her performance, but I don't know how much of that is because I knew what she was talking about. I feel like from, and I don't know if this was in the writing or an acting choice or the directing, but I think it would have been more effective if she would have not been doing the the ranting and raving thing simply because you know we are kind of cued to to recognize that that's just that's just her 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 reaction to being annoyed by something and this was something that is not annoying in the least i feel like if she had come in sort of pale-faced and a little bit you know cold and and reserved and just sort of more in shock Hmm. i think that would have worked better for me because I can't remember exactly which episode it was in, but when you you see her in sort of the earlier version of The Voice of the Resistance and you have Sheridan saying, you know, I've never seen Ivanova scared before. Her, she's not being over the top. She's just, you know, very quietly reading out the things that she needs to read out. I think that when we see her in a really, truly heightened state of emotion, I think it's more effective when it's it's... a a cooler sort of performance. So that's just my personal take on it. Last word for you, James, on whether this coda is over the top or uh, dramatic. You know, as been saying about needing to move the season on and like not, maybe there's not going to be a fifth season. So we need to actually get going on stuff. And it, it did feel like it was sort of slotted in at the end as a kind of, 
you know they didn't need to have this but it was like a hook of like okay now stuff is starting to get serious and it worked for me i mean it wasn't it, it wasn't bad but the the um her performance didn't 100% sell it uh for me or his and for that matter yeah uh, but um you know it, it it's got the plot into gear and we know where we're going and you know he he listed like the the 10 places they were going first but then they're going to earth <laughs> yeah well they're on the way yeah <laughs> convenient it's hyperspace it's on the way is kind of a relative thing uh well i think it's about time that we uh unpacked everything that is going to happen in spoiler space uh but uh next time on the podcast we'll be taking a look at no surrender no retreat there's a comma in between which is also mm-hmm. the episode that from which uh, the fourth season took its uh, took its own title. This is the No Surrender, comma No Retreat uh, season. So uh, we will be talking about that next time under Erica's expert tutelage. Uh, before Yay, we go, I get a, I get an episode with punctuation in the title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we go into jump jump space, uh, James, for the benefit of the people who won't be following us into hyperspace, uh, where can they find you? Uh, best place is on Twitter, James Thompson T H O M S O N, and you can find everything else from there. And this is the man who makes the best calculator app for the iPhone. So you, you should really too grab it. Kind, sir. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's something that you can count on. Uh, you can also count on that at the end of every episode, we go into spoiler space. Hang on. And we're back, and I think there's a fair bit to talk about uh, in spoiler space on this episode, because not only does so much crap hit the fan in this one episode, but this sets up, this sets up, as it's ending the Membari Civil War, which we're not going to have a whole lot of repercussions from in future episodes, but we're really kicking the Earth uh, Civil War into high gear, plus the Garibaldi plot line plus really setting up Lita for season five. Uh, where do you all want to mm-hmm. start? Not talking about season five. <laughs> we have to talk about <laughs> get season it over five with. eventually. Uh, I just, the thing with, as I alluded to earlier, I, I, I can't stand Byron. I think he's like the worst character in the entire show. And mm-hmm. so to have, uh, you know, the best, as as one end of that and Byron at the other end, you know, I vote for Bester every time. So clearly, <laughs> you know, some something's gone wrong here. <laughs> yeah. Once again, Team James. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I I don't remember season five well enough to I, to know for sure. Um, I'm gonna wait and watch and see what see if my vague opinions of uh i don't really buy this guy change or not but um yeah this is the 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 turning point where um yeah lita is going to eventually um lead lead the telepath rebellion uh as a result of all of this so um yeah at least it's at least it's set up well i mean it is set up very well and this we have seen thanks to sheridan and thanks to Sheridan starting the ball rolling. And this episode really seals it 
Um, Lita is disenfranchised. She is hopeless. And she is angry. And this episode also really, really signals that, yes, her powers are growing. Growing growing significantly. Um you know, she. I don't know if it signals that they're growing, but just that they're bigger than they were. Well, that they have certainly grown. They have certainly evolved. I think she's being more open with people that they have grown. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, this episode is essential in making the telepath plotline in season five possible. Whether you consider that a blessing or a curse is <laughs> uh, an exercise for the listener. But as far as this episode certainly does the job very, very well. Lita, I, I think, I am prepared to believe Lita's evolution of, as a character throughout season five, based on based on the foundation laid in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Um, with with Garibaldi, I couldn't remember watching this episode whether we knew that uh, it was uh, Bester. Who had been messing with his head? Or this if it... was the first time we we have a definitive. We knew Psychor was involved, but mm. this was the first time we had definitive statement that Bester is involved in some way. And yeah. JMS Babylon Five being run by cheapskates because Babylon Five had no money. Uh, we had in in when uh, Garibaldi is being interrogated in the smoke filled room, and then a Psychor agent steps into the room with an opaque mask that psychor agent has similar features and body shape to walter koenig um so you can you can you, you can you can i guess assume there that mm. that, that was, was him. that was another piece where i had to point that out to steven like oh look you know that's probably a psychor person because of this this and this and honestly i don't think i even noticed that the first time i saw it i just thought it was somebody who happened to be dressed in black i didn't i didn't put together the psychor thing until bester until this episode the first time through and was just like oh it's bester so it must be psychor mm-hmm. but it still worked like it didn't it didn't matter that i didn't know for the rest of that time because it was it was still that uncomfortable mystery yeah i do think that jms is being kind of nice and intricate here with uh the with garibaldi and bester and edgars when Lise Hampton Edgars uh, shows up with a vial in a lucite cube uh, for supposedly curing a telepath disease. And then Edgars doesn't trust telepaths and doesn't want Garibaldi to work with Lita. Mm -hmm. And Bester muses in his personal log that he's moved Garibaldi down the path that he needs Garibaldi to take all the way to the end, you know. The fact that Garibaldi betrays Sheridan is just a pleasant byproduct for Bester. What Bester really wanted was to infiltrate and infiltrate Edgar's Industries and take out everyone and eliminate a threat to his quote unquote telepaths. So I I feel like this has been fairly nicely structured during a season when a lot of things are being shoehorned in in the name of expediency because we may not get season five. Yeah. It's just a shame that we need to deal with Garibaldi's um, uh, change in personality for however many episodes more until we get proper real Garibaldi back. Yeah. Yeah. Proper guilt ridden Garibaldi. 
Yeah, yeah I know. I feel yeah. like it's never it's never really real proper Garibaldi anymore because he's so scarred by what happened, what has happened to him. That I just I feel like the Garibaldi that I came to know and love is is now truly well and gone. I mean, unless the show had continued for many more years and we had watched him work through all of this. Uh, I, well, yeah. we get we got a bit of uh, real fake holographic real. That's Garibaldi right. That's true. Later. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. I can't wait for that episode. I'm sorry. It's such an oddball episode, but I can't, I, I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, I, I like that mm-hmm. one too. Um, uh, and we get the signpost that he's going to Mars real soon now, which of course he will. He's mm-hmm. going to leave Babylon 5 supposedly for the last time. It's not the last time. Uh, next episode. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll... and he gets to meet Remington Steele's girlfriend's dad. He gets to meet Sorry. Alfred. I keep telling eh, you, whatever. he gets to meet Alfred. <laughs> it's Remington Steele's girlfriend's dad. You all whatever. are just wrong. Um, <laughs> as we said, pre-spoiler space, uh, we just uh, drop a bucket load of exposition to get the uh, Earth Civil War going in real form. And next episode is actually going to be a full-on space combat to liberate Proxima Three. Um, it's going to be, it's, it's, we, we're, we're in the thick of it as of the next episode. Um, so I, I think we're all pretty much agreed that this is the story that JMS really wants to focus on in season four. So the Mimbari civil war got neatly packaged and this thing got neatly ramped up. I'm trying to recall if the remainder of the season feels as rushed because this is the, this is the stuff that JMS wants to dwell on. I, I don't remember at this point, uh, but it's been a while, I don't remember it feeling rushed. But then, as you said, uh, pretty much most of the rest of the season is focused on um, on the Earth story, on, on fighting their way back to Earth, liberating Earth, Sheridan getting captured, um, rescuing him, all of those things. Um, there's a lot there, but it's mostly in one... Um, one larger mini arc with a few things happening here and there around it. I can tell you this, that when the episode was over, Stephen was like, you know, the next time there's a superfluous app in this season, um, I'm going to be mighty irate because I'll be like, we could have had a Mimbari civil war. So I do hope that we don't, because I don't remember very well. I don't believe I don't that there is there's one. another one. Okay, good. That's I what mean, I was hoping. The only one that you could possibly um, call a superfluous episode. Well, there are two. Um, deconstruction of falling stars at the end of the season, and we just got through mm-hmm. saying that we love this one, that one, or at least it's it's mm-hmm. fascinating. I think I yeah. wouldn't want to get I don't rid think of that. Superfluous. I don't want to get rid of that one. Intersections in real time. Which Remind me what happens in that one? <laughs> that is the one. That's the one where Sheridan is tortured and interrogated. I don't think Stephen's going to see that as superflu- superfluous. You no. could get rid of it entirely there is no plot advancement in it but i wouldn't get rid of, i i wouldn't choose mm-hmm. that i wouldn't choose to get rid of that i think no, i think I mean, when that he said home su- um mm-hmm. all of the atrocities and all of the things that clark has been doing you, you have to have that narratively you have to have it happen in front of the camera to somebody we care about you know, yes, you know, Ivanova can come in and rat and rave about 10,000 civilians. And yes, that's sad, but we aren't directly involved in that. So I don't think that can be a superfluous episode either, because we have to have 
Clark's atrocities brought home to us. Yeah. But one more episode I don't think would have really made the Mimbari Civil War any more substantive. I think you would have needed several more episodes if you really wanted and some to... more build up. Yeah. And, we, yeah. We might have got three corridors instead of one. <laughs> <laughs> And oh God, we 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 say so much about this all the time, but it breaks my heart every time we go into the temple where the Starfire Wheel is, and we get the blurry screen because we don't have proper visual effects uh, on these DVD transfers anymore. It just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. the Mimbari Civil War, if they'd made it that elaborate and we'd had all these CG hmm. uh, backgrounds on the planet, we would be looking at them today all squinty. That's true. True. Yep. Spend some gosh darn money, Warner Brothers, please. please. <laughs> well, we're not going to get our DS9 remasters either, mm-hmm. so I guess it's equal. We can never have anything nice. <laughs> so I can tell you a nice little story um, just as a as a side. So I met Mira Ferlin and Bruce Boxleitner a few years ago at a Glasgow uh, Comic-Con, a very small one. And uh, I was, I think, first in line pretty much for talking to them. And I got Bruce Boxleitner, of course, to sign my copy of the Tron paperback because to <laughs> me, to me, he's Tron. Um as well as Sheridan. But uh, for Mira, I had the uh, Dining on Babylon 5 cookbook, <laughs> which is a whole series of recipes that you can actually do for all the various uh, races and uh, the, the named foods that you come across. And she had never seen this before. And she spent a good, I would say, five to ten minutes reading through all the Mimbari recipes, <laughs> chuckling away, while the entire line I could feel glowering at me as she was <laughs> reading this thing. And she was so taken with it when she was up on stage later on in the day as part of the talk. And she spent five minutes then, I think, talking about it as oh, well. Wow. So, so that, that was my sort of, I had this real moment of connection, or at least she had a moment of connection with my cookbook. Uh, and that that was a really nice uh, meeting the stars moment. That's delightful. That's awesome. Oh, y'all got any other spoilery thoughts before we pack in this episode? Yes. I just, it, another thing that kind of drives me crazy in fiction is is those moments where you're like, oh, if only so-and-so had, had done X, this could have all been avoided. Like my one of my favorite movies of all time, tied for first, is Labyrinth. And there's this moment near the beginning of Labyrinth when the main character has just entered the labyrinth and she encounters this little worm and he shows her how to find secret passages. And there's two different ways to go. And she starts going one way and the worm says, oh, no, 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 don't go that way. Never go that way. And she stops and she's like, oh, okay. And she just turns around and walks the other direction. After she's gone, the worm says to himself, oh, she'd have kept on going down that way. She'd have gone straight to that castle. Which well, of course, she's goal. trying to get yes. she's trying to get to the castle, <laughs> yeah. which is so frustrating. And we had the same kind of thing today uh, in this episode. We had Lita saying, no, I'm not going to scan Garibaldi. I'm not going to see if any, you know, like that's that's an invasion of privacy. But if she would have, she, you know, she's super powerful now. She would have recognized that he had been mucked around with and maybe we could have avoided so much trouble down the road. So yeah, I had that that moment of just, you know, heart clenching. No. 
watching well, this episode. Especially if she can detect him being scanned. You know, clearly yeah. the, mm-hmm. there's like some telepathic Wi-Fi going on that she can see. <laughs> and, you know, surely there's she could see bits of uh, Bester in, in Garibaldi's mind or whatever without having to do a full deep scan and invade his privacy. But, you know, just sort of poke around at the edges a bit. <sighs> And, and once again, this is where I'm like, you know, I, I always second guess myself in the usage of the term uh, since the backlash against Alanis Morissette. But this is this is dramatic irony. I love that. Well, dramatic irony and irony are two different things. So okay. I would I, I'm, I'm all for for the use of, of dramatic irony in, in some circumstances. But more often than not, it just it it's well done here. It just makes my stomach not up. <laughs> You know, we're back to characters, and 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 <laughs> yep. we want our characters to be safe and happy. Yep, which yeah. you know would not be the greatest drama, but sometimes it is. You know, that's that. I feel like, especially in this day and age when we have so many antiheroes and so much darkness in our media, I feel like the world has forgotten that that you can have a good story that has good things happening to your characters. I, I'm not exactly sure when the world decided that real drama always has to have bad things happening. And I just, I feel like that's that's simply a societal construct. And I don't think it's true. I'm just, I'm thinking of my favorite webcomic of the moment, which is OMG Check Please, which is about a, a hockey player who bakes pies. And <laughs> at almost every important turn, you know, you, you there are moments where you get worried. Oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And the good thing happens. And you know what? It is every bit as compelling and every bit as edge of my seat. Like, I just can't put it down. I want to keep reading it as anything that has all the, you know, the, the really the really awful, horrible things happening. So I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that actually what I am saying is that one is not better than the other. <laughs> so I don't think that just because something bad happens, that's automatically a good thing. Well, you, you just need to look at this episode through the perspective of Bester, who's having a really great time. And, you know, <laughs> all, all the good things are happening for him. So, you know, just... just good point. Very like good that. point. Mm-hmm. Bester's great day. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I would watch that show. Yes. It sounds like a kid's book. All right, James, thank you so much for joining us on this protracted trip uh, through uh, Moments of Transition. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I'm sorry to have doubled your runtime. Um, but... <laughs> we add a person, we add time. It's yep. it's automatic. It's how it works. But thank you for letting me revisit an old favorite. Absolutely. And we hope that you come back again, because there will be many, many more telepath episodes coming up. <laughs> oh, Can't you wait? Joy. oh but next time of course no surrender no retreat and until then this is chip and durham erica in edmonton and shannon in durham and you've been listening to the audio guy to babylon 5 be seeing you 